Hey everyone, I know you've heard me speak about microdosing and how much I love it. And I'm talking about microdosing THC. I love it. And that's why I love our sponsor, microdose.com. Microdose gummies are incredible. They deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And when I mean just the right amount of good, I mean in so many situations, anxiety, sleep, focus, pain, relaxation. There are so many different strains and they're really helpful. And I have recommended microdose.com to so many people. And you know what they say to me? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't be afraid of microdosing. Go to microdose.com and you'll learn all about microdosing THC. These gummies feel amazing. They taste amazing. I have used them to get me into the zone I need to write. I've used them at night after a stressful day or a stressful show to relax. I have also said to family members, please take a gummy right now. And they've said, oh, good idea. So check it out. Check it out because they're fantastic. And I'm not like a big weed person. I mean, I used to be. And I do enjoy, I do enjoy weed every now and then, but I love, I love these gummies and I take them with me everywhere. So check it out. Don't be afraid. They're all natural. They're fantastic. And you deserve it. So what are you going to do? You're going to do something that is fantastic. You're going to get 30% off your first order. 30% off. That's a lot. Plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Use promo code Judy Gold, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D. It's available nationwide. They deliver it to your door. That is microdose.com, promo code Judy Gold for 30% off and free shipping. Do it. Go to microdose.com, promo code Judy Gold. You deserve it. You deserve it. And you know what else? You're welcome. Welcome to Kill Me Now with Judy Gold. I am your your host, your beautiful host, Judy Gold. This week, I am so excited. I am so excited. I love this guy so much. I think he is the funniest. Uh, person of our generation and brilliant and kind and just, oh, you're going to have so much fun listening. I know. Uh, I had so much fun talking to him and I could have kept going and going and going, but I'm not allowed to. So uh, this week we have part one of my interview with Andy Borowitz, the genius Andy Borowitz and his new book, Profiles and Ignorance is amazing. It's fucking great. So you get a Pick that book up. I'm not kidding. But right now, just sit back and relax and enjoy part one of my interview with the fucking hilarious Andy Borowitz. I just want to begin by saying, you know, 
I can't believe you're on my podcast. You are, okay, this person, no, the audience doesn't know. Oh yeah, they do. Cause they, it's in the opening. But anyway, you are by far the funniest, smartest, satirist, humorist, right? I can't get enough of you. If I could come back in another life, I just want like a 10th of your brain. I mean, five books that you wrote by yourself. This new book called Profiles and Ignorance is the best read. Everyone has to get this book. It is so fucking good. I couldn't put it down. And I wanted to text you, but then I was like, no, I don't want to ruin any you know, I just can't believe you're on my podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the one and only Andy Borowitz. <laughs> Judy, I, I feel, first of all, thank you. I feel like we should maybe close out the podcast right now. I feel we've peaked. We've okay. peaked now. Really. All right. And thank that you was, so much for listening. Yeah. Thanks for uh, listening. Also, I yeah. want that to be my ringtone as well. That what okay. you just did it was phenomenal. Like whenever I feel my serotonin level dip, you have no dip in serotonin. <laughs> Andy. Um, thank you, though. Thank you. Were, that was unbelievably kind. So thank you. No, it's the truth. Like I, first of all, I have to start with your, oh, I, that's the Jew bell, by the way. Anything <laughs> remotely Jewish gets around. I just okay, need cool. to start with your upbringing. First of okay. all, you grew up in Shaker Heights, which mm -hmm. if people don't know, it's Jewish, but it's like an, it was like an experiment, right? Of right. putting all different kinds of people uh, into one community. What was that show, that limited series? Little, fi little, yes, little, little Files everywhere. Fires Everywhere took place in Shaker right. Heights. Right. And you are the youngest because the youngest, as I've heard you, I've read that you've said, and it is true because I'm also the youngest of three the funniest, uh, smartest, <laughs> best looking, best, 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 all around best. Um, older brother, older sister, same as me. We're mm -hmm. so similar. It's this not even eerie. funny. This I know. I, I know. Oh, except your reform. You were, grew up in a reform Jewish household. I grew up in like a conservative, very Jewy, Jew not conservative politically, but conservative, right. like kosher, like, okay. So here you are in Shaker Heights, your father, Albert, and your mother, Helen, beyond brilliant in their own right. Your father, Albert, was an attorney, went to Harvard, 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 went to Harvard, summa cum laude. This is my mother, my mother, anytime someone said something stupid, my mother would say, summa cum laude. Um, <laughs> or Phi wait, Beta Kappa. Make, wait, that got the bell because it's your mother's voice. Yes. She's Jewish? Okay. yes. Okay. I just want to understand what the ground was like. It seems yeah. like this bell is very easy to trigger, Judy. Yes, it is. And Almost that's, everything you say by definition is kind of Jewish. So. so you're saying it's on your nerves already? No, no, no. I love the bell. I okay, the thank bell. you. I mean, Here I just, come. there's some podcasts where there's not a lot of bell. And, um, no. but today, oh, okay. So, we're in the zone. uh, your father went to Chavid. Um, I could do the bell for that. Cause I did a little hard. A little ha, yeah. yeah. 
And he became an attorney, even though he spoke and read eight foreign languages. And he became an attorney, but was fascinated with crime and became a a crime writer, a liter and and coined the phrase psychological kidnapping. He also won the 1981 Cleveland Arts Prize for Literature at the age of 15. I I can't even. okay, so that's just your father. Um, (laughs) And then your mother, Helen, was she also went to she went to the female Harvard uh, Radcliffe. Radcliffe, uh, Do you love the movie um, Goodbye, Columbus? You know, I love the book. I didn't, I didn't, I, I think the movie had what Richard Benjamin. Am I making that up? Or yes. That yes. It was okay. Richard, Bat, which I didn't think was a good, you know who I love my favorite character in that, in that, well, in the book move slash movie is, uh, Allie McGraw. Who's not Allie McGraw in the movie, but her brother, the hilarious, right. He's one of, he's always talking about like Montavani or something. Like yeah, that, yeah. 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 Like he likes the light classic. Yeah. I loved him. Classic. He was very funny in the movie. Yeah. Very funny. Whoever that uh, guy was. Your mother was an art historian. Mm-hmm. She wrote three books. She was this, the associate curator curator of the um, Cleveland Museum of Art. One of her books came out after she passed. She also had a collection of antique clothing. And this is the house that you're growing up in. These two people... Usually it's like in that time period, there's one, you know, usually the dad and then the mother's smart, but, you know, she has other duties, D-O-O-D-I-E-S. Yeah. What was it like growing up in that house full of intellectuals? Well, you know, it's interesting. you, You say my mom was kind of atypical in that era because that was like the 60s and 70s. And. It's true. Like a lot of women with her education were were housewives. And that's kind of the way she started. Like in my early years, she was she had that mixing bowl, that electric mixer, mix master. And she was making all these great cakes. And then at some point she realized that she was kind of underemployed, given how smart she was. And I think, uh, you know, I think what actually happened, I think I kind of inspired this because developmentally as a little kid, I was a little bit, I can tell you this, Judy, because no one else is listening. I was, that's not true. Um, I was um, a little on the slow side. Like I was very slow. Okay. No way. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this. Like this is because we're on, it's, it's the Judy I have four listeners. Yeah. I have four Mm -hmm. listeners. Yeah. No, that's not untrue. Um, She went to a, a child psychologist. Now, this is like in the 60s, so I don't Which know. Which no one did. No one, no one did that. Did. Except she was a Jew from the Upper West Side of New York. So even then, yeah, you could just the Upper West Side of New York could get a bell. Of the Wait, bell. did she, when, did, uh, she, my mother grew up on the Upper West Side of New York too, uh, but your mother was seven. Oh, I wonder if she went to school with my aunt. What part of the Upper West Side? Well, she went to a couple of the progressive schools where they just, she went to a school called the Walden School. Oh, yes, yes. It was so progressive, they actually one day tied up their teacher uh, without the teacher's (laughs) consent. They just did this. (laughs) And I think, you know, who the luminary was in her school, who was kind of a contemporary of hers, was um, Mike Nichols. 
So that's, no way, Holocaust survivor. That, oh yeah, my that, God. So that was the milieu. So she was, yeah, Upper West Side, lefty, Jew, intellectual. So she's the kind of person who in the 60s would go to a child psychologist and say, why is my son so fucking slow? Why is he but doing what, anything? But your siblings um, were fine. Is that correct? They were I mean, fine is a relative. Slow. I think okay. fine is a relative term. I mean, I think we all had different things, as most kids do, you know? Right. I mean, I think that we had, we all had our issues. But I think in my case, here's how basic it was with me, Judy. Um, I wasn't sitting up. <laughs> like I was just no way. Down. Yeah. And so the, and so the doctor said, you've got to like prop him up and you know, he's got to be propped up for a certain amount of time. So he can sort of get used to his spine. He <laughs> can get used to the idea of not being flat on the bed. Of course, now, you know, I spent a lot of my time flat on my bed, you know, reading my phone and stuff like that. So it, it didn't really take but uh, she she went to the doctor. And How that, old are you at this point? I mean, I'm just a few months old. Okay, I mean, I'm not. I'm not a year old yet. You're just not and even engaging. You're just like I there. couldn't give a fuck about sitting right. up. Everyone else is sitting up. I'm like <laughs> this. This is full of shit. This sitting up nonsense. Um, so anyway, she went to this, and the guy said to her, "Let me ask you a question." So she kind of pivoted from me to her. And he said, you're this educated woman. You went to Radcliffe. You, um, you're a smart lady. Why, um, what are you doing with your life? Because I think he had a sense that maybe she was trying to keep me as a baby because I was oh. going to be her last. Yeah. So you see in this cool. A like little Munchausen-ish by proxy. Oh, there, yeah. And there is some, some of that in my family, I should add, mm-hmm. but not in her case. But she was a little bit of, a little bit on that adjacent to that i would say right. and i think he, his attitude was like you're trying you're not letting your kid grow up and you're clinging to him you have a sense that this is going to be your last baby so you're kind of holding on to his babyhood and maybe you should be thinking about what you're going to do with your life after he goes to school so she decided one thing she'd always been interested in was art she was not she had tried to be an artist as a kid and she didn't have talent in that area. And she acknowledged that. So she started thinking, well, what about art history? So she went to Case Western Western Reserve University. You've done your research so well. Um, What a staff you have. Um, So uh, she went to Case and she got her master's degree in, in art history. And then she wound up working at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which by the way, I don't know how much time you've probably done shows in Cleveland. Yeah. The Cleveland Museum. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's like this little jewel box. It's mm-hmm. not a huge museum, but it's like every picture you see is like, oh my God, I've seen that in books. Like right, everything, right. everything is like very, it's been literally, you know, a, a term we overuse these days is curated. You know, it's like you go out to get a ham sandwich and it's like a curated ham right, sandwich. Right. From, you know, everything is curated. But actually, this museum was curated. That's an appropriate use of the term curate. And, and they, had a really big endowment and everything in the museum was kind of perfect. Like it was just, they didn't have any second rate. You didn't say like that was Rembrandt on kind of an off day. That was like right. Rembrandt with a hangover or something. Everything is like top notch. So that was, that just happened to be the town where she and my dad were settled because that's where he got his job offer as a lawyer and it happened to have this world-class art museum. So that was her career. And and it's you know, interesting that she also was the head of the adult education over there 
And mm-hmm. as someone, if after you tell that story, it's like, oh, she's she's sort of paying it forward about with this adult education stuff. Yeah, and it was interesting because she had a bunch of cohorts her age, you know, who came up in the same generation. And they all were kind of overeducated women. And a lot of them really did find careers. Like in the, the nice thing about Cleveland is it has this really strong arts community, it has Case, but it also has the Cleveland Symphony and the Cleveland um, Art Institute. So they're all these very And the Cleveland women. Clinic, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Cleveland Clinic, amazing. Actually, they have another good hospital called University Hospital, which successfully treated my dad for prostate cancer. So that's like, they're kind of like the second rate, <laughs> the second rung hospital in Cleveland is a, is not second rate at all, but this is like the less famous hospital. It's also an amazing You know hospital. what's so funny about that? I, <laughs> I stayed, I was doing uh, one of my shows at a theater there and it was right mm-hmm. by University Hospital and mm-hmm. I, they put me up in a really nice hotel, <laughs> but in the hotel lobby, you know how they have the... Um, you know, the bellhops use the whatever that thing is to put your luggage on. Yeah. yeah. OK, so they you know, they put them in. They have the they had the luggage carts and then next to them, they had IV poles and <laughs> wheelchairs. And I was like, oh, this is going to be this is a fun hotel. Um, yeah, and you could you could sort of settle into kind of assisted living. You know, yeah. Depending on how the show goes. <laughs> you know, say maybe I'm time for me to retire. Maybe right. I get a home like- health aid. I'm going to hook myself up to one of those catheters and just call it a day. Um, no, that's, that is one of the crazy things about Cleveland. If we, if I, let me, let me just talk about Cleveland and medicine for a second, because it is kind of a weird thing that people who haven't been there don't know. Cleveland's a very weird place because a lot of it is kind of, you know, you can go stretches and stretches of blocks and blocks where there's nothing going on, but they have these two amazing, um, hospitals and hotels attached to the hospital. So when I brought my wife, it's like 2007 or so before we were married, I brought her to Cleveland to like hang out with my parents. And we, we, we stayed at a hotel because my parents were, you just don't want to be a house guest with them. Yeah. They, were, they, were, they couldn't be bothered. There was no, right. there was no food service, which is very <laughs> un-Jewish. Yeah, that is not Jewish. No, but when my mom decided to turn away from being a homemaker, she turned hard. Like she never made another meal. And so it's like, it was a really, you don't want to stay at Casa Helen Borowitz. It was a bad, bad scene. <laughs> but the Cleveland Clinic had an intercontinental hotel attached to it, which was. That's the one I stayed at. Okay. That's the one I stayed at. Not I the, yeah. So. Okay. So you're, we're in the same hotel now. So I'm going to do, I'm going to sort of repurpose some of your material here. So okay. I hope you don't, I hope you don't mind. But there are a couple of crazy things. So like my wife, who'd never been in Cleveland before, is seeing the city kind of in stretches, and no offense to the Clevelanders living living there, you know, and who are listening right now, but you've got to be honest when you say, like, there are parts of Cleveland that really do not look like anyone has lived there for maybe 80 years, um, or maybe one of the houses being used as a personal dungeon, but you don't really buy that it's, like, habitable, right? So the Cleveland Clinic because it is such a going concern, took over blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks of the city. You just sort of want it to like engulf the entire city because everything that the Cleveland Clinic does is like world class. So you get to the Cleveland Clinic. Not only do you have that thing with the bellhops where they have like the IVs and the catheters and all that <laughs> right by your luggage, but they have a really good restaurant 
at the at the Cleveland. It's called like Table something or other. And it was like getting great reviews, like in Condé Nast Traveler. And you're sitting there enjoying your meal, and then you look over at the table next to you. There's a guy in a fucking iron lung. I mean, it's like <laughs> they're just like people who just don't think they're gonna make it this like their last supper. No, like they're not out. gonna yeah. survive. And it's the weirdest thing. You really feel like you're being kind of grandfathered into like the whole hospital there because there right. are just patients everywhere. The other thing that is crazy about the Cleveland Clinic is that when you, I don't know if you drilled down this far, but when you go to the TV um, channel um, menu, it's like all the things you're used to in TV, all the, you know, HGTV and right. all that stuff that you watch when you're on tour that you never like watch when you're at home. But then you get to like the bottom of the lineup and they're like easily four to 10 Arabic language um, channels. And the reason for that is because rich Arab sheikhs, and I guess that's a, that's a redundancy, right? Because right. every Arab sheikh is rich, fly from the Middle East to Cleveland to get all their medical, oh. you know, urgent medical, like heart, heart surgery, right. cancer surgery. So the population of the Cleveland Clinic Intercontinental Hotel at any given moment is probably, has probably about as many Arabs as say Oman. No you know? way. Yeah. It's like literally, Wow. Probably, I mean, yeah, it's just a huge Arab population. So it's a little bit, Cleveland's a weird thing in that when people talk about Cleveland, they say like, okay, LeBron James and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. One of which, <clears throat> one of which is no longer there. And the other one you go to once, you look at Tina Turner's yeah, shoes and- from the movie Tommy and then you're done, right? <laughs> did you go to that? Did you, go, did yes, you check out yes. like Tina Turner's Of course, shoes? of course. Yeah, or Elton John yeah. as the, as the um, pinball wizard. From yeah. and, then, and then you're done with that attraction for the rest of your life. But the stuff that really is cool about Cleveland is like the symphony, the art museum, and the medical stuff because it's like it's just fucking world class. So there you go. I it's so I feel funny like that got some kind of pay payback. From yeah, Cleveland I think so. Well, that Denver hotel, Palmer. I can't. I was on tour, and when they said the Intercontinental Hotel, I was like, "Wow, I love this. This is a great gig." And then I walk in, and it's like you know, medical center. Um, yeah. You're staying so, at the hotel and you're going to get all the plasma you want. Right. While you're there. <laughs> right. Hey, everyone. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? And I'm one of them. You're listening to one of them. Fast Growing Trees has everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, house plants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and your space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever forever. I just want you to know that I just got off a plane and I walked in my apartment. What was the first thing I did is I came in and said hi to Avi, my fig tree. I'm telling you, and I have Yael, which is another plant, but fast growing trees has changed my atmosphere here in my apartment. You don't need a lot of space, but they do have, you know, they have stuff for outdoor spaces, but I live in an apartment and I'm telling you, 
Avi and Yael, yes, they're both Jewish names, Hebrew. The space looks so much better. And I just had a conversation with Avi. Like, I was like, I missed you. I love having living things here. It's very, very, I don't know, it's made this more of a home. It's the best. And Elisa has some too. And she loves them. And she talks to them too. But she got that from me. Anyway, check out Fast Growing Trees. You need to be around plant life. This spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code JUDYGOLD, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D, at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code JUDYGOLD at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code JUDYGOLD. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. You're welcome. So did you sit up after that doctor's appointment? I would say briefly. I think mm-hmm. I, I, I did. And I sat up and, um, but you know, the thing that happened with me, Judy, is that because my mom, as I said, she, once she turned away from being a homemaker, she turned hard. I, I think because she grew up on the Upper West Side and she actually majored in social relations at Radcliffe, which is what they used to call psychology, social right. relations. So she read all the books that said, and she read Dr. Spock, which was the, you know, the book of that oh, year. Yes. And, and so like the first, it was like the first five years or so of your child's life, it's really important that at least one parent be around. In those days, of course, it was always the mother. They never, right. they never even said like, oh, yeah, or, you know, the dad, like the father got a complete hall pass. Right. Like, no, you can just, you know, go to the golf course and do whatever shit. In my, in my dad's case, he had no sports, so he was really unathletic. And, Same. And so he yeah. just, his, his whole thing was just, okay, I'm just going to read about true crime all the time. Right. That's right. what I'm going to do. But so my mom was really there for the first five years. And then when she, like, got very serious about art history, she, you know, I was a little bit more in the care of, I would say, our housekeeper, which was also not unusual in mm-hmm. Shaker Heights growing up. It was sort of the way things were. But what this meant was that I think of the three kids, I don't know if this was true for you as the youngest, but I feel like with the youngest kids, the parents have kind of run out of parenting juice. They're just like, enough all this. I thought we were done. 100%. Who's this, who's One, this asshole who's yes. still here? Right. Yeah. I- it's so it's it's crazy. And my parents were much older when they had me. So they were really like, oh, God, what the hell were we thinking? How old were they like in their 40s? Yes. My mother was uh, 40, a little over 40. And my father was 47. Yeah, they were um, so over. They were so done. They were just like, you know, I'm 13 and my father's 60, you know, <laughs> I'm so fascinated with Shaker Heights because it was an experiment I think it kind of worked in that era. I, I mean, do you? It sure did. No, but, well, but it, it was it was cool. I mean, because you know, one of the impressions people get when they hear Shaker Heights, I think they think that sounds very ivory tower and it's very fancy. And there right. certainly were there certainly were rich people there. I mean, a good friend of mine, her dad owned Jaguar Cleveland. <laughs> so no I mean, way. Like, yeah, they had like the biggest house. Were I they Jews? Seen. They were sure were Jews. They were okay, definitely thank Jews. I'm um, okay. selling British motor cars. But, um, you know, what was interesting about Shaker Heights was that it was adjacent to 
Cleveland proper. So if you were an African-American family, like say an African-American professional who wanted your child to get the best education, you would move a few blocks over from where Cleveland stopped and where Shaker Heights began. And so my high school, which goes against what people assume about Shaker Heights, was about 40% African-American. So it's like African-American, Jewish, and some Gentiles thrown in there too. You're so lucky. That is I'm totally lucky. Totally lucky. And I would say, you know, everybody has beefs with their parents and God knows I do. And, you know, we've all been yeah. through therapy. So we got a chance to air them all. And also on podcasts, we can air them too. Yeah, that's true. Great thing. Um, but one thing they really did right was moving to Shaker Heights mm-hmm. because my dad got a job offer in Cleveland. They did their homework and Shaker. I went to public school my entire childhood and was a Great education, but it was also great education in, you know, experiencing other people who aren't exactly like you. And one of the problems we have now is that even though the, there's so much diversity in our country, there isn't a lot of diversity in a lot of our sort of self-selected communities. People, oh, absolutely. You know, especially I'm talking about white college educated people. You know, mm-hmm. we congregate with each other. There are some exceptions, but I think to, to a I agree a hundred percent, you know, I'm doing yeah. research for a sh- uh, show I'm writing and I just read that Paul Robeson, who went, worked in a lot in the Soviet Union, he sent his son, Paul Robeson Jr. to boarding school in the Soviet Union when it was That's under it. communist control because he wanted his kid to know what it was like not to be judged by the color of his skin. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? How, I mean, and and then the kid ended up marrying a Jew. Oh my God. But, and Stalin's daughter was in his class. Stalin's daughter. That is crazy. Uh, Yeah. But it's just, uh, you know, the whole, I've heard you, you know, speak about Shaker Heights and the fact that it was so diverse and how it affected you. And it's, I just you're so I feel like you're so lucky, although unlucky, because when you were in seventh grade, you were 87 pounds. (laughs) I actually just brought this up the other day because my daughter is just entered seventh grade. Is this Madeline? Maddie. Yeah. Yeah. You remember when she was a little baby? Yeah, 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 yeah. Maddie, um, Maddie just entered. So I told that story. It's funny that that weight is, was just seared into my mind, obviously, because I remembered it, you know, the other day when we were, we were talking about starting some grade. Yeah, I was very scrawny and, uh, I inherited all my father's athletic prowess. I was <laughs> terrible. Anything involving a ball was right. really out of the question. And that unfortunately t- takes a lot off the table. Um, but were you, were you bullied? I mean, was it, yeah, <laughs> you were. They d- I see. I would. I have this whole fantasy that Shaker Heights was like, no, you we. I was so fucking bullied, too. But so it did. So it was like a, a regular high school. Yeah, but I mean, you can't you can't engineer out how horrible children. Right. Right. That's the one thing that although I must say, I, again, like I feel like I now I live in New Hampshire, which is, you know, an unexpected turn that my life has taken. But my daughter, I would honestly say she is surrounded by super nice kids. And it's, it's very alien to me because I think especially, on a, you know, I can't speak to your experience, 
growing up as a girl. But for me, like I felt like boys, especially in middle school, they express their dominance totally physically. Oh, like, absolutely. Girls, like girls, I felt like there was all this Kremlinology. I mean, you talk about like Stalin's daughter. I feel like that's what, what I know it's a little bit, I'm being a little stereotypical here, but I felt like girls, a lot of it was like ostracism and nastiness. Oh, and yeah. Like, oh, oh, you thought that we were friends with you, but we're not. We don't. Yeah, like yeah. You. It's just, and, it's torture. And, it's emo- it's boys, psychological torture. Yeah. Yeah. But boys, it's mainly like physical torture. So it's just like, you know, there's a great moment in like all this stuff. And I don't know if you have seen Dazed and Confused recently, but um, Richard Linklater is almost my exact same age. So I just watch everything that he does because I just feel like it, it's basically I love like him. a. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically like just a home movie of my childhood because he went through all the same stuff, even though he's from Texas and I'm from Ohio. It's like, oh, my God, I have to watch that. Dazed and Confused takes place on the last day of high school of the class of 76 of my Mm -hmm. class and his class. And so but there's like moments in that where like just you're walking down the hall and like a kid like just threatens to punch out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God, it just brought it back to me because that to me. That that to me is the way dominance is established among boys. It's all physical. I know what know what's worse. I and mean, I think girls, the kind of psychological torture is also horrible. Um, but with boys, it's mainly just, you know, getting your ass kicked. And that's what right. it was like for me. I relate to Welcome to the Dollhouse for my mm-hmm. my upbringing. <laughs> that would be. But yeah, I, it was awful. But, you know, it it makes you who you are today. Yeah. Was your mother, you know, an anomaly there because she was, uh, you know, uh, someone with a master's degree who was working or was that kind of common in the Shaker Heights? Some women had careers. No, I think it was I think she was an anomaly. I mean, she had a a, a gang of, I would say, four or five other women who were doing stuff to like, right. in, in that area. University Circle, kind of near our favorite hotel, the Intercontinental. Mm-hmm. It's where that's where like all the museums are. And, and so there was, you know, there were a lot of really educated women, but most of them were not doing that. Most of them were housewives and uh, it was just, you know, it was, it was the sixties and the seventies, but in in many ways in Shaker Heights, it was still the fifties. Right. You know, it's like we, because the Midwest is not at the, you know, the, the concept of Shaker Heights and integrated community was kind of avant-garde, but everything else about Shaker Heights and Cleveland was very retro. Like the the food and and you know movies would get there like a year after they came out in New York. And so culturally, um, in terms of like pop culture, we were a little bit behind. And um, and yeah, I think culturally in terms of like feminism, right, and those kinds of things, um, we were a little bit behind. But in other ways, politically, we were very advanced. Cleveland had the first. African-American mayor of a major city, Carl Stokes. So, I mean, that mm-hmm. was like, and then he became a newscaster in New York. Later. Right. Um, I remember Carl Stokes. Yeah. Carl Stokes, very handsome, yeah. very handsome guy. No. So she, it was an anomaly. And, and um, I mean, we were kind of a, I mean, my parents were both kind of, you know, a little bit of, you know, an exception because, you know, my dad was, my dad was just very openly intellectual and very well, aggressively brainy. And um, just I'll give you an example from later in life when I was in my, I think, 30s and I was I was visiting, um, visiting Cleveland. I was living in L.A. doing 
TV. And I, I, you know, we didn't get back to Cleveland all that much, but it was, you know, kind of a big deal when we could, because it was a long, long way to go. So I got back to Cleveland and my father, maybe it was my father, maybe my mother warned me that my father had recently gone to a flea market and he'd come across a whole box full of really old yellow newspaper clippings about the Lindbergh kidnapping. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, case, but No, I have no idea. Yes, of course. Okay. I mean, not everybody, but so like Charles Lindbergh, for those listening to Judy's podcast who are not Lindbergh. The four of you. Yes. <laughs> Charles Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped and later murdered by a guy named Hauptmann. And my father had come across a box. I don't know what maniac was collecting these clippings. Uh-huh. I mean, a Hauptmann fan of some sort. And my father announced, or maybe my mom warned me that my father was in the middle of gluing Hauptmann clippings into a scrapbook. What this meant was that the entire like three days I was there visiting from California, my father was completely absent. Right. He was up up in his library gluing Hauptmann clippings into a scrapbook. He would come down for feedings. And he'd be at the dinner <laughs> table Phoenix. and he would like wolf down his food. And then he'd be like, okay, back to the Hauptman. And he would like go dart up the stairs. Oh, and be back. Um, so that was, he was a weirdo. And um, I mean, in kind of a, that's an appealing, I mean, it's so eccentric. You kind of right. have to, you know, you kind of have to applaud it. But, um, but yeah, they were not typical parents. Yeah. Not at all. And you were the top student in your class, editor of the Shakerite. <laughs> which was the school the newspaper. newspaper. Did yeah. you have like a close group of friends? I mean, did you have a little, wait, were you bar mitzvahed? No, that's a sore point. You have to unring that bell now. I guess you can't unring a bell. Not like, the no, same. you can't you can't unring the bell. Well, well, I just said bar mitzvah, but yeah. Now here's, I mean, you know, you've done your research so, so thoroughly. I'm actually surprised that that the you Quaker, didn't I that. didn't, I didn't unearth the Quakerness. No, there's no, you know, my parents, here's the thing. My parents were very waspy Jews. Yeah. Um, which was a big deal in that. My era, mother, can I say something? Cause my mother who also grew up where your mother grew up, you know, there was, there were the waspy Jews on the Upper yeah. West Side. And then there were the Jewy Jews on the Upper West right. Side. Um, <laughs> and yeah. So I knew all about that. And the waspy Jews would go to the east side where they weren't really allowed. Uh, right. But but the my mother said they never went east of Columbus Avenue because um, they were <laughs> Jewy Jews. But yeah, I know. I know that whole. Yes. And and I think the fact that your parents were intellectuals probably fed into the uh, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. But you could have had a not you could have had a nice, you know little bank account. No, I know it would have been, it would have been awesome, but no, they were, I mean, they kind of practiced the kind of Judaism that could now be probably done with an app. I mean, they really just touched the bases barely. Social justice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they sent me to temple, but they didn't go to temple. Right, right, right. And so I was like their, you know, you know, I was like their stalking horse. Like I would Mm -hmm. go out, I would, that was how they could fly the flag. But it was literally, they would pull up to the temple, shove me out of the car and speed away. I mean, it was like a very, very cursory 
approach to Judaism. Which made yeah, you embrace I, it even more. Um, <laughs> so you did have, did you have like a group of friends that you? You sound extremely skeptical. Because like, I, I had you? like three friends and then I just got this uh, message on Facecock and this, it's like, hey, Judy, hope you're well. We're having our 40th. It's really yeah. the 42nd reunion, but they couldn't have the 40th because of COVID. So it's the 42nd right. reunion. And I'm like, for, I don't want to see, like, I hated every <laughs> minute of that. You think I'm going to, like, voluntarily go be in a room at a country club with, uh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. But you, but you had you had a group, though, right? Didn't you have a I group? had, like, a I don't talk to any of them, but there were a couple <laughs> of, like, three or four, and we were all just misfitty. Yeah. yeah. Not, not, yeah. But I was I really funny. Did. Yeah. I mean, I really did have a group. I really did have a group. I, I, I can sort of like you, I'm not really in touch with them anymore, yeah. but I, but high school was, I mean, I was, I really found, felt like I had my place because I was doing, I was doing a lot of extracurriculars. I mean, right. I was, you probably did theater, right? You were in the No, theater. I was in the band and the orchestra. Oh, you were an instrumentalist. Yeah. What, what was your instrument? Clarinet and piano. And the nice. problem was that, I wanted to be on the basketball. I mean, I tried out for the basketball team in seventh grade and the coach said I was too tall and it wouldn't be fair to the other players. <laughs> I swear to God. And that was it. So I was just a band nerd. But yeah, music, music. I was all into music. Yeah, and I couldn't be in I, the school play because I was too tall. Wow. Well, yeah. there was an awful lot of, you had so many things to overcome with this height. Does, does oh, it yeah. still hold you back? Does it still hold you back? Well, oh, you no, like it's it. great. I play ingenues all the time. No, it's it <laughs> definitely, I mean, I'm really tall, but it's so interesting watching my son, Ben, who's six, seven and a half, six, eight, you know. Wow. And wow. he, like and LeBron. he, right. And he plays, he's an athlete, but People would come up to me when he was little. Well, you know, and he was twice the size of all the other kids. And they're like, wow, he's <laughs> tall. Thank God he's a boy. And I'm like, I'm right here. Like, what the He's not fucked. Yeah, he he is. His experience oh was the complete opposite. You know, tall, funny, smart, charismatic. It's, it's, it's just defines you. I was six feet at 13. It was just shit. But anyway. Yeah. So it was a whole different experience for me. Um, and then I went to college and then I blossomed. Blossom. That should be a TV show. It would be amazing. In my opinionation, it would be great. <laughs> Where'd you go to college? I didn't go to Harvard like you, Andrew. No, I wasn't. I, I wasn't, went to I'm Rutgers. I'm you. No, I. Rutgers. Rutgers actually has really good basketball, doesn't it? Yes. But shut up. But they, you didn't play Listen, there either. I played in the orchestra and I sang in the choir. But listen, we were not allowed to go anywhere else because we lived in New Jersey. Sure. And um, my parents said it's a great school. And it when I went, it was twenty five hundred dollars a semester. Wow. That was a good deal. And they said, when you go to graduate school or if, you know, then you can go wherever you want. But, no, you know, I'm not paying Whatever. So my brother, who was very smart, my sister, very smart, got, you know, got into other Ivy League schools, but they went to Rutgers. Unlike you, 
who went to Harvard. Did you get a perfect score on your SATs? No. I really? Not. I did not. We're not really going to discuss SATs first. No, because, uh, no, I, I don't, I, I don't remember mine. Anyway, uh, <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. So you graduate, you have a bunch of friends, you're, you know, you go to Harvard. I think your brother Peter also went to Harvard. He your did. sister went to Simmons. That's you, like an FBI doctor. I know, right? Yeah. Your father so would have loved me. I got all the information. So, so you, you go to Harvard after being, the, you, you were the valedictorian of your class in yeah, high yeah. school. That's, mm-hmm. that's true. And as a sophomore, oh, wait, you got, did you get, Pranked by the Harvard Lampoon. Like you, I think you were, I read that you were a freshman. Yeah, I and, did. And you got pranked by the Lampoon. Yeah. Which I later became a member of. Yes. I, um, it was a really funny prank and I didn't, and I was, first of all, one thing you have to know about me, Judy, is that I am a real rube. I think that's a word that has to come back, but I'm a real, I like playing pranks on people, but I am also really great, great, Spotter for any kind of prank. I am a complete mark when it comes same, to pranks. Same, same. I'm very trusting. I'm very trusting. I'm, I'm gullible. Very... I am. I'm like, really? Yeah. 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 And um, so Harvard, they had like the first week, I don't know if they did this at records, but there's like student activities sign up day, like where you go to like some big room, uh, some big, it was I think called Memorial Hall. It's a big hall at Harvard and all the different places like the you know, the Student Volunteer Association and the and the radio station and the newspaper. Yes, yes. They all have like tables and you sign up. So a guy pulled me over and it's funny, he he later became a really good friend of mine. But a guy, this guy named Steve Chris, who was on the Lampoon, pulled me over to what I thought was the Crimson table. And he was like, say, we're the Harvard Crimson and uh, we're going to have a big, you know, meeting for all the people who want to be on the Crimson. So, you know, sign up here. And they gave me a flyer. And then a couple of days later, I went to the Crimson building. And there was just a, a couple of like really pissed off looking Crimson editors there. And by the way, I'm married to a Crimson editor now. So um, it all comes full circle. Olivia. Uh, yeah. So Olivia, she's, she was, she's an actual real journalist. So I went there and they were looking kind of pissed off and said, yeah, it was a stupid lampoon prank. There's no meeting today or whatever. And then later when I actually, the second semester, I, I sort of, you know, figured out where the funny people were. <laughs> it was like the lampoon. So I, I forgot about the crimson and I just went to the lampoon uh, tryout. And at that meeting, Steve Chris, who was the guy who had tricked me into, um, you know, signing up for the fake crimson thing. He gave us an example of some of the pranks they do. He gave an example of the fake crimson prank. And he actually read the flyer out loud. And it's like, it was so funny, but it was very deadpan. And so I did not pick up on it. That's hilarious. And it was like, it's like, you know, do you have what it takes to be a college journalist? And it was like, 
He was like, learn the five W's, the five W's in the West. Who, what, when, what time, and where. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and, what time? Um, what time. Yeah. It's like just totally went over my head. Right. But, um, but yeah, I was pranked. And then I became a prankster um, when I was on Lampoon. So I found it's my... It's just so fun. I love, you know, when it's to me getting mocked like that and getting it's that's hilarious. Like that's what I love, you know, that people would take the time to do something like that. Well, when I was, when I was starting in, I know I'm jumping ahead in chronology. So it's like, I'm like, well, I did want to, I did want to talk about how you wrote the hasty pudding show as a sophomore. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. With my, my college roommate was a really talented. Fred Barton. Yeah. yeah, and he like, is a composer, and yeah, amazing. He and I are still very good friends. He lived when I lived on the Upper West Side. Thing, Fred. Fred is very gentile, so he does not get one. Yeah, no, I, he didn't get one. But, but he's he's like Fred. When I met him in college, I thought this is the most brilliant um, musician I've ever met because he was one of these guys who, like, he he was a, he's a great composer, but he's also a great piano accompanist. Like if you were singing a song, let's say you were auditioning for something yeah, and you wanted to sing a song and, you know, the key you were singing was too low and you wanted high, he could like transpose on the like, piano. On, I know. I, mean, he I was hate like, people like that. Yeah. I know he was like a savant, but he was also like a really, wasn't like this guy who had that one thing. He was like a brilliant guy in so many areas. He's very verbal and everything, but he just, in terms of music, he's a genius. So Fred, yeah. So he and I wrote the show together, and it was super fun. And uh, Hasty Pudding show, you get to go to Bermuda, which is kind of cool. Wow. And, and okay, now I'm going to do a little name drop. Okay. Um, which I, my wife tells me is a very bad characteristic of mine, but I think you, as a New Jersey girl, native, yes, would, native, would um, would appreciate this. Do you know who one of the stars? of my Hasty Pudding show that I wrote. It was in 1978. Do you know who one of the stars of that show was? Who? Governor Phil Murphy. No way! I love him! Yes, everyone does. Yeah. Everyone does. I have a friend who's in politics, and and I met him, and he's like, oh, I love your comedy. He knew all about my comedy. I was like, oh, my God. He's a really funny guy. Yeah. He's um, <gasps> really a great governor. He probably should be president. At I know. Like he's, he's, he's amazing. Right he's so smart. But when I was in college with Phil Murphy, he was like, he was so good at like, at sort of, you know, handling people and everything. I was like, geez, like turn it off. Right? I'm like right. a sort of misanthropic guy who doesn't know how to do that stuff. Like I, I don't know how to humor people. And Phil was like vice president of the HP Pudding. And he's like always like, hey, you okay? You doing right? You know, like, uh, so like he he just had that gene, you know. He's got that's that crazy. Um, but but the, you know, the pudding show is like for people who aren't familiar with it, it's like a drag show. Until recently, now it's co-ed. Right. Finally, after nine thousand years, but it was it was a drag show. So Phil Murphy, you know, would dress up in drag, and he's a really good singer, really good dancer. I can't wait. Yeah. I, I hope I see him again. When you were at Harvard, Norman Lear came to visit. And then mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, then uh, I guess a few weeks later, his his partner, his writing partner, Bud Yorkin came and you introduced Bud um, yeah. and did 10 minutes of stand up. 
which was about how you were responsible for his success. It's a very arrogant. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I was very condescending about that. Yeah. But he offered you a writing job. Yeah. After seeing you do that 10 minutes and your reaction was now I don't have to finish my Rhodes application. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was like, I, here's the thing. My parents, you know, it's interesting because given how interesting my parents were and how intellectual they were, yeah. when it came to like practical matters and how they saw my life playing out, they thought there was only one option, which lawyer. was law school. Yeah, yeah. Now, my dad, I don't think, was a particularly happy guy as a lawyer. That's what's so weird about it. Like, they were from that era of, you know, second generation. Um, Jews who were like professional class. And I think the dream was you get a profession, you become a doctor or a lawyer. Um, And that was the dream or nightmare that they had for me. I mean, they, it was weird. It was like, we want you to do something as long as it's something that will crush your soul. Right. And you can dabble. You can dabble dabble. after you retire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Or, you know, what was crazy um, was that my mother they knew like I was in all the school plays because I'm a ham. And right. you know, this is what happens to him. They wind up going into comedy. But um, I was in all the school plays. I was in the musical because I could sing and all that stuff. And I was really into like the idea of being a performer. Mm-hmm. And my mother was like, there were two things. She said, she said, well, you should consider becoming an entertainment lawyer. <laughs> because it's the same thing. But, so it's the same yeah, thing yeah. as being an entertainment. Now, I, I don't know how many entertainment lawyers you've hired in your career, but it does. That does not look like no, no, no. That's really not like you know. You, at no point do you belt out a song. But right. they were saying, they were saying like I remember my mother saying, she said, "You could use all your performing skills because you get to present your case to the jury." Now, like okay, what can I? Uh, like, what <laughs> am I going to be, Johnny Cochran? I mean, it's like. <laughs> How many people, how many lawyers, 99% of all lawyers never say a word in court. In front of a jury, yeah. No, ever. And my dad never did. My dad was not a litigator. He was like a corporate attorney, and his specialty was SEC, Securities and Exchange exchange Commission. Is there anything drier and less performative than that? It was just my dad going through reams of paper every fucking night. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I was, I was, I guess, even though I'm a rube, I was sentient enough to know that the picture she was painting for me was not accurate. It was a right. complete chance. So, yeah, they, their whole deal was uh, be a lawyer. So, like, I was going to apply to law school, but I wanted to delay it. So I was going to apply for a fellowship. Like, a, I don't think I would have ever become a Rhodes Scholar because I don't think I had... I, I was, I didn't have the, they like athletes on people who can right. move in space, as they say. Um, but even that aside, I don't think I would have made it, but I was looking for anything that could put off law school. And so when Bud Yorkin came and said, he was sort of like, I don't think he even know what he wanted me to do. It's sort of like, I like this Harvard kid. Right, right. He, and he made me laugh for 10 minutes. And so he, I just sort of flew out to LA and he put me in an office and it was like kind of, okay, now what you got? So it was like, such a tremendously lucky break. It was a time when Harvard and the Harvard Lampoon was not 
what it is now in terms of like a showbiz credential. No one was going into show business then. Right. There were a few people who had gone to Saturday Night Live, like really about two or three. But beyond that, it was not like, there wasn't like this shoot sending people out to the Simpsons the way yep. there has been in the last 30 years. So it was, it was a little we- It was a little bit uncharted territory. I know, and you went there. He said to you, he gave you an assignment uh, mm-hmm. and you finished it. And he said, you're a, there are doers and viewers and you're a doer. So you're out in L.A., but you did you you went with your friend, John Bowman. Rest in peace. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. Yeah. We, we drove across country. He was yeah. on the lampoon with me and we drove across country and stayed at every Motel 6. Yes. Like we would drive for like a day and then wherever there was motel. But they were new stuff. there. They were new then. So they were probably yeah. not as gross as I mean, I don't know. I'm not uh, I'm not disparaging the Motel 6, but uh, um, yeah, that's, that's like I, I would say my only sort of moment as a hipster was like I was one of the first people to try Motel 6 you know, yeah. before they got all commercial. Right. You, you know, know, your major, your thesis was on restoration comedy which is so specific. I, I mean, <laughs> I can't even, if people don't know what it is, it's the period after the, the restoration period, 1660, right? To 1700 yeah. or something. Yeah. And, um, you've been doing, you've been dipping into Wikipedia a little bit too. I oh, think. I did it. I didn't use wiki. I hate wiki. Um, oh, okay. I did For an Canada. encyclopedia. I like, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, so I was reading it. I'm like, this is fascinating. So, the restoration comedy, uh, because the Puritans had banned stage yeah. shows, like you yeah, know, it was like prohibition for eighteen years. And is that right? So and then people went so people went fucking crazy. That's what was so wonderful about the restoration was that first of all, he, you know, you'd never had women on stage before. Everybody was it was even as you know, like in Shakespeare's time, it was all men dressing up as women. Which is so weird for all those Shakespearean plays where it's then a woman pretending to be a man. Right, right. <laughs> Very confusing. But yeah, I was really, I was attracted to that for a couple of reasons. One was, here's the noble reason. The noble reason was it really um, resonated with me because restoration comedy was very much kind of topical satire. It's kind of like what yeah. I do now. Because yes, they were making the- fun of they were making fun of people in the audience. And right. they were making fun of people in King Charles's court so it's a lot of kind of you know it's basically like twitter everyone just yeah like yeah yeah each other. so I, I i that appealed to me and i like the fact that you know if you think of like and believe me we're not gonna do many minutes on this but i'll be brief but if you think about like shakespeare like shakespeare is very deep like it's why shakespeare is still being performed because it's like the things he's writing about are so universal and so profound and they work and on they're so still- many levels Still being written about in other ways. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like, you know, the history plays like still like, you know, Richard II still appeals to people now because they can see parallels today. The great thing mm. about the restoration for me was that there was none of that. <laughs> it right. was very specific. And it was just, no, we are being funny. And and every now and then like somebody, some some uh, academic would try to elevate restoration comedy. I thought very unsuccessfully. And yeah. I was like, dude, no, no, this is just really funny writers and it's very broad and it's very dirty. And, yeah, it was filthy. Uh, yeah, inappropriate. And yeah. yeah, things like the country wife where, you know, it's like all about having sex. And right. you know, that, that's, that's always about 
so that's sort of the philosophical reason I was attracted to it. The more, I would say, cynical reason I was attracted to it was because, because it was held in such disrepute. Nobody on the Harvard faculty was an expert in restoration comedy. Ah. So when it came time, when it came time to grade my thesis, there they were probably like, whatever. Wow. <laughs> it's like, what, whatever, I, you say, whatever you say, what, what were Albert and Helen? This is the phone call. Hello. Uh, what's your thesis about? What? Albert. <laughs> Get up, pick up the phone. I can't even imagine that, but it's, it, if you, people, you got to look it up. It's fascinating. It really is fascinating. And it is what you do. Thank you so much for listening to Kill Me Now, part one of my interview with the one and only Andy Boritz. How fucking hilarious is he? Seriously. Genius. Anyway, this podcast is produced by Laura Vogel, edited by Colin Schmeling, and Everything else for the podcast and my life is performed by the one and only Brittany Joe Sowards. If you are listening or new listener, please subscribe and leave a review. Please. I need five stars. I need five stars. I need more people to listen so I can actually, I know I keep threatening, but it's getting closer, people, where it's just not feasible. So please give me five stars. And tell everyone about my podcast. Also, uh, get my book. Yes, I can say that. When they come for the comedians, we're all in trouble. I've been saying this for two fucking years. So if you haven't gotten it, get it. Okay? It's becoming a show. Uh, A a theater show. (laughs) Anyway, I have some wonderful upcoming dates. On October 2nd, I will be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And I'm very excited about October 6th. I'm at the Wall Street Theater I think it's in Fairfield. It's somewhere. It's in Connecticut with Jessica Curson, my friend Jessica Curson. And then I'm going to be in Provincetown for Women's Week, uh, October 11, 12, and 13. So, oh, and October 19th, uh, I'm interviewing the one and only Phil Rosenthal. Oh, and I should do one for Jess, Jessica Curson. Um, And I should do the one, one for Brooklyn, the... Bell House in Brooklyn. I'm interviewing uh, Phil for the uh, Striker Center for his new book that's out. That's fucking great, too. And then on October 22nd, I'll be in Fort Lauderdale at the Sunshine Cathedral Center for the Performing Arts. I'm doing that for Florida because there's a lot of Jews in Florida. Anyway, that's about it. I don't, I hate Lindsey Graham. I just want to say that. I hate his fucking guts. And I hate all these men who think that they can make decisions for what like I just can't fucking believe it but I'm not gonna get aggravated right now I'm not gonna get I am aggravated I am aggravated and it's fucking annoying anyway if your blood isn't boiling over this assault on women um I can't be your friend anymore Uh, we're just done also I gotta sleep I I, I haven't been sleeping because I've been under a lot of stress and pressure but I'm gonna go to sleep now I'm not kidding I'm recording this this closer right before I go to bed. First of all, if you're still listening, I love you so much. I I have love in my heart uh, and my soul. I want you to have, if you're also listening to this, I don't know how anyone could listen to this before they go to bed because I'm so, my voice is so annoying. But if you are, I hope you have sweet dreams. 
yeah, I don't know what else to tell you, except um, I really do appreciate you, even though I, I can't see you. You know, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, at Judy Gold, J-E-W-D-Y-G-O-L-D, because I'm a Jew. And uh, God, can you tell I'm a little giddy and I'm exhausted? Because I'm just going on and on and on. It's so fucking annoying. All right. I'm going to brush my teeth and floss and take off my makeup. And as we always say, so long.